How, how awesome is Dustin at leading us? I am so great. Give him a round of applause. I think the same thing of Rachel Robinette when she's leading us over at the Demer building and just they're doing a wonderful job. We are blessed to have so many gifted people here in our church. I shared over at Demers that I am so glad that we have a team of people that are able to preach and teach. Uh, my brother who is at a church in Janaden Hutton and is a pastor there, he doesn't have a team of guys like we do that can just you know fill in for him and do such a wonderful job. We are blessed, I'm blessed by it, you are blessed to have a variety of godly voices speaking to you through our church. And so, really appreciated what Jim shared last Sunday. One of the things that, uh, really the main emphasis was that we can engage scripture through that ACTS acronym that we uh, often use for prayer. So what does this passage have to say about adoring God? And how can I adore him through this passage? Is there any sin this passage is pointing out my life that I need to repent of and ask God to you know, change me in that area? Thanksgiving, what does this passage tell me about what I can be thankful to God for? And then supplication, is there a need in my life or in the need? Is there a need in the lives of anybody that is in my network that I can be praying for? And after hearing that, I, uh, my life group guys, uh, guess what we're doing? Uh, for the next 14 days, every day, my guys are getting into God's Word using that acronym to engage the Scriptures with, to engage God with. So, I'm blessed by our teachers here. Um, we are going to be back in the Bible and Race sermon series that we're in this morning. We're going to be back into it uh, just so you can know how my brain is working and just to remind you how I'm approaching this topic. Uh, I'm looking at the storyline of the Bible, which some say could be divided into four major sections, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so I'm looking at each of those sections and what does it have to tell us about the race, about race and racism and justice and how God views those things. We have covered creation and fall and we've even begun our journey in the redemption section. Uh, we've looked at uh, Israel. We've looked at the prophets. Today, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus because he is under that redemption section. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll begin our journey looking at Jesus in race. Lord, thank you uh, for today. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are in our midst. Thank you that you desire to disciple us so that we live more fully surrendered to all that you have commanded. Lord, thank you for, that you are patient with us. Thank you that uh, your heart is full of love and compassion towards us as we are often slow learners. Lord, I pray this morning that you would that you would continue to enlarge our understanding of how much you do value all races of people in all places of the world. And I pray that as we have an enlarged view of how, of the great love you have for the world, that that love would grow and blossom in us to the point 
where it actually changes how we live. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so in order to kind of look at Jesus and race, we're going to look at, very quickly, Jesus' genealogy, his birth, his teaching, and his lifestyle. How about that? 20 minutes. Probably not. I'll try my best. Here we go. Jesus' genealogy. So, the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament starts this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why is Matthew doing this? Matthew is doing this because God made some promises to Abraham and David. Among other things, God promised Abraham that he would have a descendant, that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And what Matthew wants us to see with the very first verse of the entire New Testament is that that promise is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the family member of Abraham that will bring blessing to all families of the earth. Then, is it, well, who is this Jesus going to be? Is he going to be like an ordinary Joe? No, he's a descendant of David. Matthew's pointing out. Why does Matthew do this? Because God made some promises to David. One of those promises was that David would have a descendant that would be a, that would be a king over the world, over God's people in the world. And this king would have an eternal kingdom, and his reign would be eternal. So, if you combine these things together, what we have here is Jesus is God's promised king whose eternal reign and kingdom will bring blessing to all nations. So from the very first verse of the New Testament, we are, we are, Matthew is making us see God loves all people, all races, everywhere. That's how the New Testament is set up. But there's more to this genealogy. This genealogy mentions four unusual women in it. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Bathsheba, and there's Ruth. Now, why these women? Why does Matthew mention these four women? He, he could have mentioned, you know, these well-respected matriarchs like Sarah, Rebecca. No, he mentions these four women. Why? Two, they have two things in common, these four women. The first is... Every one of them has a scandal surrounding their marriage. First thing in common, their marriages. The second thing is they're all non-Jewish women. So, uh, Rahab, Rahab, and uh, yes, it was, it was Tamar. They're both Canaanites, non-Jewish women. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite, and Bathsheba, although scholars are unsure about her ethnicity, she was married to Uriah, a Hittite. So, what Matthew is emphasizing here is that Jesus' family history is racially diverse, and that he has come from a racially diverse marriages. 
Matthew is making it, if, if he, he can't make it any more clear that Jesus is the promised king, and he is the promised king for all people everywhere. So that's just his genealogy, his birth. I'm, I'm going to spend the least amount of time here, but if you look at the, the birth narratives, you know, if you look at Luke and if you look at Matthew, who are the first, some of the first people that come and worship Jesus? Wise men. From where? The east. Scholars think that was Babylon. So you have non-Jewish people being some of the very first people to worship Jesus. This is foreshadowing Revelation, where you have people from all tribes, nations, and tongues coming to worship Jesus. Um, if you look at... Uh, uh, Luke in, in the birth narrative there and Jesus is dedicated at the temple and there's there's Simeon there and he makes the statement that this is going to bring a light Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles right if this stuff is everywhere more I study this it's like this is on every page of the scriptures Jesus's concern God's concern for all people everywhere and then you go to Jesus' teaching, and there's, there could be so much that is said here. But I think the story or the teaching that is most critical, and Dustin, you mentioned it uh, a couple Sundays ago, Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan. So let me tell you the context of the story, and then we'll look at the story itself. So first, the context. So um, there's this rich, well, not rich, sorry. There's a rich young ruler, my mind's getting... A little crazy here. Um, there's a, a Jewish lawyer who comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, how can he inherit eternal life, right? And Jesus' response, if, if, I think this is in Luke 10, Jesus' response is, is basically like, look, you're, you're an expert in Jewish law. What is written in the law? Like, you tell me what you think the, the law has to say about how you can in, inherit eternal life. And what the lawyer says then to Jesus, he says that, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, guess what? Bingo! You have answered rightly. Go and do this, and you will live. That was Jesus' response. So the lawyer then asks, who is my neighbor? All right, so the lawyer asked Jesus, this. Um, and Luke 10 29 says that the lawyer was seeking, wanting to justify himself. And that's what led him to asking this question. Which means this lawyer was looking to establish that he was indeed righteous. Okay? And Jesus, being the master that he is, he doesn't really answer the guy's question directly. He goes into this story about the good Samaritan. But I, everything in my body says this man, because I know, as scholars will tell you, that Jewish people believe their neighbor was their fellow Jews. And everything in my body tells me, and then I, that's, there's, that's probably not worth much, but I just feel this <laughs> conviction that this man was expecting Jesus to give him that answer. You know, he's expecting you to say, well, your neighbor's your fellow Jew. And this man was getting ready to say, well, I've been awesome. You know, I've loved my fellow Jews. 
you know? And what Jesus does is he tells this story that would have been tremendously shocking to this Jewish lawyer and anybody else who was listening in on this story. So what about the story? So Jesus tells this story of this guy, I think he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's on the road, and while he's going on his way, a group of thieves, they attack him, uh, steal his stuff, beat him up, and leave him for dead. Well, Jesus says, well, there's a priest that came along, saw the man in need, went to the other side of the road, and passed him by. And then there was a Levite that came along. Now, the Levite was a temple worker that helped priests carry out their duties. The Levite sees the man in need, goes to the other side of the road, passes the, the, the man left for dead, you know, just passes him by. And then, here's where the shot comes. A Samaritan comes along, sees the man in need, and here's what the scripture says. Here's what Jesus said. Uh, he had, in verse 33 of Luke 10, he had compassion, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Well, the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. A denarii, two denarii would be worth two days' wages. Gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. What's so shocking here is that Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, the reason this is so shocking is because, as probably a lot of you know, the Jews despise Samaritans. Like, they really, really, really did. Like, if you hear this is true. They despise them. They considered Samaritans half-breeds because they were a mix of Jewish and Gentile, you know, blood. So they were half-breeds, and they viewed them as religious heretics. Like just, um, and things, tensions between Samaritans and Jews, it got so intense in the first century that there was intense violence between the two groups. And the Romans were getting along pretty well with the Jews, and the Jews were getting along pretty well with the Romans until the Romans started really siding with the Samaritans on some things, which historians will tell you really started the rift between Jews and Romans that led into the, you know, the Jewish revolt in AD 70. Like, this was serious stuff. And given this historical context, Jesus is the saying, the Samaritan, hero of the story, not, not the Jewish priest or the Levite, right? Now, what, what, oh, well, this is how Jesus goes on. He, he asked the lawyer then, after he told him, you know, this story, in verse 36. So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And then he, meaning, uh, meaning the lawyer, said this. He who showed mercy on him, and then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So what was Jesus, what, what was he doing with the story and making the Samaritan the hero of the story? Well, he wanted the lawyer to know, and he wants us to know today, two things. Who is our neighbor, and what does it mean to love our neighbor? First, who is our neighbor? Well, from this story, it's pretty clear that anybody in need, regardless, irregardless of their race, is our neighbor. Anyone in need. 
Secondly, what does it mean to love our neighbor, a person in need? Well, if you look at the story, it means to sacrifice to meet the need. That's what it means. Sacrifice your safety, your comfort, your financial resources, your emotional bandwidth. Get in the ditch. Carry the person's burden. To, which requires sacrifice. If sacrifice, if you are not burdened, how can you say that you're carrying another person's burden? If you're not burdened at all. There, the, the sacrifice has to be there. That's what it means to love your neighbor. Um, now, that's Jesus' teaching, or at least one part of Jesus' teaching that I think illustrates very clearly that Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, so to look at Jesus and his way of doing things is to, it's identical to what the Father and the Spirit want. That's how God views all races of people. We see that through Jesus' teaching. Now, what about his actions? Well, how about the story of the woman at the well? Guess where Jesus was at? Samaria. Guess who the woman was? A Samaritan woman. And how... Did, I mean, Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria. A lot of them wouldn't. Even though it was the shortest route to many places, they would willingly go around the area, take the long road, add a whole bunch of travel to their uh, schedule, uh, simply because they despised the Samaritans so badly. That's how bad it was. But Jesus, and what's interesting is the Greek word behind, um, it says that Jesus had to pass through now, the Greek word behind it, every time it's used in the rest of the Gospel of John, because this story is in John 4, I believe. Yes. Uh, every time it is used again in John, it, this is what it is indicating. It is indicating that divine, it, it, it indicates divine necessity or requirement. So what this is saying is it wasn't like by chance that Jesus went through Samaria, or it was an accident, like he got lost and found himself in Samaria. He was actually going there because he believed the Father and the Spirit wanted him to go there to meet this woman at the well. It was God pursuing the Samaritan woman. And so here you have Jesus meeting with this woman, and his actions were full of compassion and mercy and understanding and asking good questions and support and challenge as he interacted with this woman. And it's so that the passage tells you it shocked her. It actually shocked the woman that he would be talking to her. And I mean, Jews didn't even view women highly. So you add that on top of what Jesus was doing. And what he's doing is shocking. His disciples were shocked by it. If you look at John 4, 9 and John 4, 27, you see the, the Samaritan woman's bewilderment, and you see Jesus' disciples' bewilderment of what he was doing. So not only was Jesus' teaching shocking, his actions were shocking. And he wasn't a person that preached one thing and did something else. He lived it out. And how about Jesus with other marginalized people? Leopards. He touched them, engaged them, healed them. Tax collectors, prostitutes, the list goes on. You see Jesus crossing over the lines that we have a tendency to draw in the sand 
to divide us from other people so that we can feel superior to other people. Jesus is repeating, routinely just crossing over those lines. But the best action, the greatest of all Jesus' actions that demonstrate that he is demonstrates that he's for people everywhere, all races of people, is the cross. Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I don't know if it would have been possible for Jesus to use more inclusive language than what he used. Jesus so loved America. Now, Jesus so loved the world. So that Americans who believe in him can have eternal life. No, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is, in, that is as, in, as in inclusive as you can possibly be. Let me just talk, and I'll end with this, um, application. So if you look at his genealogy, you look at his birth, you look at his teaching, you look at his actions, uh, it's, it's, it's just so clear that God is for all people. So here's something I want you to consider, to consider in way of application. The first, and, and, and this is from the Good Samaritan, it is not good enough for us to be innocent bystanders when it comes to racism and social injustice. There's nothing in the Good Samaritan teaching that indicates it is okay to be that priest or the Levite and to see people in need and just uh, walk past them and do nothing about it. And we have Christian brothers and sisters that have been crying out for decades saying that racism is real. What, fr I, what frustrates me, and I know i got to be careful here, I come into white Christians that believe racism is an issue. Like they believe it's, it's really not an issue. It's all blown out of proportion. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are crying out, saying it's a real issue. That there are not even, it's not even just individual racism between this person and that person that's a problem, but there are systems in place that are keeping black people oppressed. They're crying out. And we wonder why some things get to the point where there's riots. And many of us white people, we look down our noses. And I know there's some probably some groups that are, you know, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But if you've cried out for decades after decades after decades, there is nobody in this room that wouldn't be tempted to start using violence so that somebody would hear you. This is a problem. Um, so we are called not to be innocent bystanders. Um, and um, this will probably take too long, but read this book if you're interested in this topic. The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Actually, Andy Curzon, Jim and Brenda's oldest son, 
one of my great friends uh, recommended it to me. I devoured the book. He, this, this guy, he's a black guy, Christian guy. He, the whole book outlines how the American church has been complicit in the racism that's in our country. And what he means by complicity is essentially we've been indifferent to it. In a lot of ways, we've contributed to it, even by our racial jokes that we make, even by you know these racial slurs that we joke around with our buddies, and that all creates this atmosphere where racial injustice can happen. So we've contributed to it in some ways, even if they're maybe, I mean, you know, not just like outright, like, you know, I hate black people or whatever. We contributed to it. But also there's been a whole bunch of ways where we've just kind of been indifferent. Like it's not affecting me. And so we just continue on. But again, that's not what the good Samaritan story teaches us. It's a problem. And so what we have is a sin of omission. A sin of omission. Now, here's the thing. Where do you get the motivation to actually do something about racism and social injustice? I read a story about the, the four girls that were killed in Birmingham, Alabama, in church when the bomb blew off, right? Read a story. You can hear stories like that. You can hear stories, and you're going to hear stories of black people sharing the racism that they experience. Um, you're going to hear those stories from some friends of mine. Um, but the thing that will get you motivated to actually do something about this is this. You have to understand with the Good Samaritan that you were the person in the ditch. You, in that story, you are the person in the ditch. And who is not just the Good Samaritan, the Great Samaritan? Jesus Christ. He got in the ditch with you. You are all broken in sin, dead and enslaved to the evil forces in this world. Right. You are in a place that you could not rescue yourself out And he got in the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't just walk by on the other side of the street. He got in the ditch. He bound up your wounds. He sacrificed, poured himself out so that you could be made whole, so that you could be rescued from the hand of oppression. And it's understanding that that can give us the compassion and the mercy we need to actually do something about the injustice that we see in the world. Because as long as we see ourselves, and we Americans are great at this, this is like built into us from the beginning, that our success in the world is due to our hard work. We have to know that any success we have in our life, our part in it has been so minuscule. There are so many things that you don't control that God does, that has contributed to your success. You didn't control the family you were born into. And a lot of you have been blessed by your families in so many ways you can't even count them. And you've had opportunities that a kid living somewhere 
in the third world will never have, even though they work as hard as you. You've, you know, so you've got your family, the location you were born into in America, the wealthiest, richest country with resources just everywhere. It's amazing how much money is out there. Grant writers will tell you. There's so many things, the gifts and abilities that God gave you. You cannot take, you can't say, like, I'm, I'm the reason for my success. In understanding that any success you have is largely due to God, in understanding that you were dead in a pit, and not because somebody else is doing, because your own doing, and that's how we're different than the person in the ditch in the story. It should move us. We should be like, I've received such compassion and mercy. How can I not extend it? Jim made the comment well, when he taught last Sunday that I'm just a poor beggar that is like found a meal trying to help other people, other poor beggars trying to find a meal. The great thing about Jim is he really believes that. <clears throat> and that's why people talk about his humility. He he doesn't just say it. People will, people will say that. Do, I mean, do they really believe that? Do you really believe that about yourself? Jim really believes it. And that's why he is full of compassion and mercy for people. Let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, Man, we sin in so many ways. There are outright sinful things we do. Um, but then there are these things um, also that we see the good we should do. And we don't do it. Lord, we are grateful that you are not that kind of king. That um, you... <laughs> saw the good that, that you, you didn't even need to or should do, but you wanted to do. And, and you rescued us, and we are grateful for that. And Lord, I pray that that would be such, such the center of our heart. Because Lord, I believe, and I think your scripture teaches, to the extent that we understand how deep our need was and how hopeless we were and how amazing you are that you came and rescued us until to the extent that we understand that and that is real to us that's the extent we're going to be able to show compassion to other people so make that so much more real in our hearts especially for those of us who have been Christians for decades and have heard this a million and a million and a million times may we not lose the wonder in it and may it move us to be different. Lord, I pray this week that as people are wanting to say that racism isn't an issue and it's blown out of proportion and there's just evil people doing um, the protest and you got that whole, I pray that we can be people that in compassion speak up, encourage, with love and gentleness and respect, but with firmness as well. That's a real issue. Because our brothers and sisters in Christ tell it's a real issue. And we are choosing to believe them 
over all of the news outlets and media and all the political bantering that happens. Lord, I don't know what our role's church is in all of this. I know it is to equip our, our individual people to be difference makers in this area. But Lord, I'm also praying about, is there something we need to do church-wide um, in, in this area? And so we pray that there would be light in that. And that there would be light in our hearts uh, this week as we as we attempt to be with your Holy Spirit, uh, the Good Samaritan. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.